I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump fired the intelligence community inspector general Michael Atkinson, then fired Glenn Fine, the acting inspector general of the Pentagon, from his new role as the chair of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. And he also picked a fight with another inspector general, the inspector general of HHS, Health and Human Services, even though it was clear Trump didn't know him. The tell being, it's not a him. Christy Grimm is a woman who has worked for eight years with the Obama administration, eight years with the Bush administration, and three years with the Trump administration, though Trump views her as tainted because of, I guess, that Obama time. Once again, remember, he did not know who this person was or what her gender was, or if she worked for which administrations. But still, she no good. What's going on with Trump and these inspectors general? I have a theory. In general, Trump doesn't like being inspected. Inspectors have never been Trump's friend. Anyone who's tried to inspect his businesses, his taxes, his building permits, his status with the Atlantic City Casino Commission, he does not like. He expects inspectors to find fault with his properties, with his finances, with the structure of his entities, and now with his policies. And so they have. Oh, the inspectors have. Oversight. You know, it's a funny word. It's what inspectors offer, but it's also an accurate description of Trump's dedication to detail. Actually, maybe it's not that accurate. Maybe oversight is overly charitable to Trump. The foundation was purposefully designed to flout rules. The extensive scrutiny to how Trump's real estate empire skirted tax accountability suggests that oversight didn't just happen. It was intentional. We are finding out more and more that there aren't effective checks on a president determined to flout oversight, to fly in the face of oversight, to fly under oversight, especially when the party that he controls and most of the other branches of government are indifferent to the oversight function. While another type of leader, which is to say a leader, might determine that now, amidst a pandemic, is the worst time to conduct a purge of actual and would-be critics, Trump has decided otherwise. His reptilian brain and his instinct for survival have dictated to him that now is the best time, under the cover of distraction. Or you know what? Maybe there really was no calculation. He does what he wants to do when he wants to do it, and so far there have been no actual constraints or guardrails. We have one. We have only one, it would seem, and that one is the presidential election. And Trump does seem to understand this, and he understood it before the rest of us did. And he will continue to take advantage however he can until and unless he loses in November. Depressing thought. Not even so much that this one malefactor has exposed the flaws in our system, but mostly depressing because so many other politicians, and worst of all, voters, are indifferent to the abuse, or even worse, cheering it on. On the show today, I spiel about Bernie Sanders stepping aside, but why? It turns out that Burlington isn't the right setting if what you're looking to breed is a chameleon. But first, Killing Eve, it's the BBC and BBC America series that pits a glamorous assassin against an MI6 agent. That agent is both repelled and thrilled by her prey. Or is the predator the prey? Yes, it pursues that question quite 
diligently. The novellas that form the basis of the series are written by Luke Jennings, who joins me to talk about the characters he created, the TV show that resulted, and why five tercets followed by one quatrain is a particularly demanding form. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Killing Eve is the phenomenal, exceptional BBC series from the brain of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and also Luke Jennings. Luke Jennings is the multi-talented author of the series of novellas that become a novel in a way that Killing Eve is based on. He has an extremely interesting background, having uh, studied Indian languages and produced documentaries and written for years as a dance critic and before that a dancer. And it's all there in a subtle way, I believe, in the Villanelle novels that Killing Eve is based on. Luke joins me. Thanks for coming on, Luke. Great pleasure. Let us talk about Villanelle, the poetic form, the Villanelle. It is an exacting form. It is a precise form. The poets will tell you it is a difficult form. This had to inform why you named the character Villanelle, no? There there was part of that in it because the, the Villanelle also expresses, I think, a kind of impossible, unreachable desires. And there's an inaccessible part of of Villanelle, the character. Yes, it's very hard to craft. And it is, it's one of these forms of poetry that I think 100 or 200 years ago, there was a belief that via rhyme scheme or structure, rigid structure, you could reach some sort of transcendence. And uh, maybe I'm reading too far into it, but Villanelle, the character, certainly had a rigorous amount of training. But because of that rigorous amount of training, she now is essentially a pure id and can follow her desires and maybe is a sublimation of the desires of the reader. Well, maybe. Um, the, The thing about her desires are that they are for herself alone. She is not beholden to anybody. She doesn't dress so that she is desired. She dresses, as the TV programme I think shows very well, precisely for herself. It may be flamboyant, but it's not calculated to attract. It's calculated to indulge herself. She does it because she can. And that's at the heart of a lot of her motivation. She simply does things 
because she can and because she doesn't have to answer to anyone. Do you think that's part of Villanelle's psychopathy, not caring about what others, because from what I've read about psychopaths, they have the ability to sort of reflect to other people what they want for their own needs, but they do engage in that sort of uh, at least performative behavior. They certainly do. I mean, Villanelle is by nature predatory and highly manipulative. And she knows exactly, for example, how to pull Eve's strings but on the other hand, her behaviour is, is learnt behaviour, it's mirrored behaviour. There's always a questionable aspect to its sincerity. Right. The books and the TV series kind of go their own way because we all felt it was going to be impossible for the books to track the series or the series to track the books. And so they exist in the same imaginative universe, but they're not the same story arcs. Were the books though didn't exist? You wrote them just a couple of years ago. These weren't like um, you know Ian Fleming novels or or Travis McGee novels that were out there for a long time and for years people talked about adapting them. They were quickly scooped up and turned into television, right? Well, I started off. I've had I've had several novels published in the conventional way, but on this occasion, I just wanted to put them out there because I did think that the stories had were perfect for television. And so I self-published them. And in fact, that turned out to be quite a good strategy because they were picked up very quickly. You have a long history writing for newspapers, magazines, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, great magazines, successful novels. So you didn't self-publish because you had to or couldn't find some publisher who'd have bankrolled this. It was, as you say, uh, more of a strategy uh, based on timing. I mean, these were stories which were kind of TV episode length. And I didn't want to wait 18 months for them to be published in the conventional way. I wanted to get them up there as a calling card and seen and read. So self-publishing was on this occasion the way to go. Oh, that's bold. So when you turn it into a TV show, I know you had a lot of input in the first series, but what was that process like for you? Were you talking to some collaborators who would say something like, oh, I think Eve would have this on her refrigerator, to which you said, I never thought of that, but that's a good choice or a bad choice? Yeah. Phoebe Wallabridge and I and Sally Woodward Gentle, the producer, had a lot of talks kind of trying to establish tastes in a general sort of way and, for example, the importance of fashion to Villanelle and the way that she used her kind of passive-aggressive campaign against Eve, undermining her confidence kind of via fashion and all of those kind of things. So we didn't actually talk about exactly what the garments were going to be like, but we did very much talk about fashion in general. And Phoebe, who is actually much less interested in, in fashion, said afterwards that she was kind of rather intimidated by all of this. So we, we weren't really talking about those kind of things. We were talking about character and the respective worlds in which Eve and Villanelle lived. Right. It seems to me that Eve lives in a Ken Loach movie and Villanelle lives in a James Bond movie. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe that's right. Yes. And I don't even know if this is conveyed with filters on the TV show, but uh, it's conveyed with words as you do it. And I, there is a different texture to each of their existences. Well, it was quite strange. When I first saw the set of Eve's flat, it was very, very peculiar because I'd had actually no 
input into it because walking to Eve's flat was like walking into my own. It was very much the same, the same idiom and genre, and it was kind of worryingly interchangeable. And then um, on, on the same set, we went into Villanelle's flat, and it was exactly as you see it, that amazing, desirable, slightly eccentric Parisian flat. Nothing like mine, sadly. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine that when you wrote the original novellas, you had a, ca- a person in mind or maybe an amalgam of people in mind for who Eve would be. And now that the person is Sandra, it must be hard and not bad, but it must be hard to keep them, you know, pristinely quarantined away from each other. Sandra's mannerisms, or the mannerisms she brings to the character, have to, to some extent, bleed into how you write the character on the page. Well, maybe they do. But I've always thought that you're not looking at the character's face when you're writing them. It's much more a question of looking out of their eyes from the inside, particularly with Sandra. So in a way, she's a character in terms of being a psyche and a spirit, not so much a character when I'm writing her in terms of looking at her. Right. That is so true. And I was thinking of that in terms of just the reveal in the show of Villanelle, of Jody's character, because they take time with it and it is a little bit mysterious what you know of her. Whereas in the book, we meet her very early on and we it's not that we're looking at her, we're looking at the world through her eyes. And in that way, you can be more opaque with the character while spending more time with her on the page than you can do in something that's filmed. I think so, yes. I mean, essentially, Villanelle gets Eve from the start, but... Eve's voyage of discovery is understanding Villanelle. And so, in a sense, the reader is looking more, even when we're with Villanelle, we're kind of looking out of Eve's eyes because we're, for Eve, the discovery is ahead of her of exactly who Villanelle is. Do you think Eve is more oppressed by her gender than Villanelle is? I think Eve is, in a sense, oppressed by herself. She is a repressed character. And one of the one of the things that I wanted to get across is that, especially in the third book, is that how, in order to survive, both women take on deeply repressed parts of themselves. So to negotiate the world of the Russian underworld and the Twelve, Eve has to access her, her inner villanelle, if you like the part of her that she's always denied, but that Villanelle has always recognised that's there. And by the same token, to negotiate the world of the emotions, Villanelle has to try to find a part of herself that's, that's true, that is, that is not manufactured or mirrored. She has to discover empathy or something like it when in fact her instincts are to capture Eve, to torment her and to devour her and to move on. But if they're to, if they're to survive together, then they have to pool their resources and they have to become more like each other. That's the, that's the journey of the third book. Yeah. Um, so you are a man writing these two great female characters and the TV production team is dominated by women. Have you noticed a difference? There was a very important process that took place before anything had been shot, which is where 
myself and Phoebe and Sally and various other producers established what the tone and the taste and the feel of the show was going to be. So it was aligned at that point, I think. And Phoebe then went away and wrote that first series, keeping all of that in place. And she created a a template for following writers. There was a scene I remember in the first series where uh, Eve was invited out to a fancy dinner by, I think, a Chinese diplomat. And she fretted about having to buy a certain kind of bra that would fit with her dress. And I, as a man, said, I have never thought of that. It seems real. And most of the female viewers of that show loved that moment, that grace note. And I was just thinking about moments like that. And if they uh, existed in the book. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- there is a a point where Eve is fretting before th- before that very appointment with the Chinese diplomat. In the books, it happens in Shanghai. In the in the TV program, it's in Berlin, and she's wearing a spaghetti strap dress, and she cuts herself shaving her armpit, and she worries throughout the evening if that's going to show and. There is, there's lots of that sort of stuff. And Eve has those kind of worries, moment to moment, sort of presentational worries. Is there an answer as an author that you have to the question of how much should, should we as the audience be rooting for this murderous main character? Well, that was always the the fun for me was seeing how appalling I could make her and have people still sympathize with her. That tension is is central to the whole book. The sense that possibly we're horrified at ourselves for being quite so behind her. And part of us is Eve, but part of us is definitely Villanelle. And that's fine. I think people like that. How would Villanelle be handling the coronavirus quarantine? Well, she's certainly very used to holding up alone and, and in ordering in, put it like that. I think she'd be just fine. I think she'd envy the virus to some extent. She'd want to learn from it. Yeah, <laughs> I think she would, yeah. I think she'd be she'd be interested by its, its absolutely random nature. Yeah, she maybe, oh, I could imagine her finding a way to, to weaponize it or to at least look into it. I think she's interested in death and anyone or anything that brings it because she's a professional and that's her trade. Luke Jennings is the author of many works, but we have been talking about his uh, series that Killing Eve, the TV show, is based on, the Villanelle series, and the final work, which is available now, though shops are not open, there are many ways to get an ebook. Killing Eve, Die For Me is the name, available over the internet, wherever ebooks are sold. Buy, download, indulge. Thank you so much for your time, Luke. It's a great pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Bernie Sanders has exited the stage. He vows to support the presumptive, or as I prefer the notional nominee, Joe Biden. They're going out on top, he argued, in all the ways that matter, except for, you know, getting the most votes. The time, the moment, the situation that we're in now essentially forced his hand. I know that there may be some in our movement who disagree with this decision, who would like us to fight on to the last ballot cast at the Democratic Convention. I understand that position. But as I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership and the work that needs to be done to protect people, 
in this most desperate hour. I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign they cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. That, by the way, that kind of decision making, that qualifies as leadership. Yes, it does. But why not the ultimate mark of leadership in America? Why, the question is being asked, did Bernie Sanders not win the Democratic nomination for president of the United States? One theory is that the establishment closed ranks, uniting in an effort to, in keeping with the tenor of these times, to fight off the contagion. The immune system of the party kicked in and kicked out the viral invader that sought to take it over. To some extent, that did happen. How nefarious was it? Well, to a Sanders supporter, extremely. To all others, not at all. Change the phrasing, the facts don't become any different, but a Sanders supporter will tell you that the Democratic establishment, the media, moneyed interests would never let Sanders win. A Biden backer would phrase it like, Democrats at the last possible minute rallied around a lifelong Democrat more aligned with their values and in doing so back the candidate who they thought could best beat Donald Trump. They might also note, in fact, Donald Trump thinks that Joe Biden is the candidate who could best beat Donald Trump. So it was either a return to normalcy or a thwarting of a revolution. Only it wasn't either or. It really was a kind of both. They're both the same thing, and that is the best explanation for what happened. But there have been other explanations, and I've been reading them in preparation for this moment that we knew would come. In the Washington Post, Rachel Mantuffle wrote a story called The Rise and Fall of Bernie Sanders, a theory. What is that theory? That Bernie Sanders was too comfortable with ideas and society in the abstract and too uncomfortable with emotions and people in the particular. She quotes an historian saying, people are fascinated by the heart attack that Bernie Sanders had. He goes on to say, the fact that he suffered from it makes him into a human being. It really helps Bernie's case because he readily confesses he's not one of those backslapping politicians. It's not his brand. He's a little like a stick figure cartoon, but a heart attack made him seem human. Mantuffle goes on to describe an interaction she witnessed between a Sanders supporter named Ryan, who talked about his medical expenses at a rally, and the candidate himself, quote, he, meaning Sanders, juggles numbers nimbly, but isn't, it seemed quite clear, sure what to do with emotions. It was perhaps the moment for a hug, but Bernie couldn't quite go there. He extended his long arm to Ryan's shoulder and simultaneously shook his hand without getting any closer. Literally, this became an arm's length transaction. So that theory, that's one theory that voters needed an emotional connection and Bernie didn't give him one. At the same time, the New York Times was writing up their own obit, how it all came apart for Bernie Sanders. So in this story, the Times describes different power factions within the Sanders campaign, like there are in all campaigns. And one power faction seemed more attuned to Sanders' needs and wants as a person, and the other one wanted to go scorched earth on Joe Biden. The ones who resisted going after Joe Biden too viciously, led by campaign manager Fayez Shakir, were in keeping with the wishes of Bernie Sanders and his wife, Jane. Others in the campaign, like advisor Nina Turner and David Sirota, who the Times describes as a pugilistic aide who is known for his voluble and combative online persona, were more in favor of scorched earth. They didn't want Sanders just railing against the system. They wanted railing against the Democrat they regarded as embodying the system, Joe Biden. 
The Times also describes another dynamic, quote, for months, his political advisors and outside allies have quietly mulled a shift in tone. The possibility that Mr. Sanders might take even modest steps to show skeptical Democrats that he could unify the party. But he has always been disdainful of the art of politics and had to be nudged into wooing even friendly Democratic leaders. So Bernie Sanders did not change his tone. Bernie Sanders never changed his tone. Plus, Bernie Sanders never changed his tactics. Didn't go more harsh on a rival than he ever has in the past. And let me again remind you of the post-explanation of what went wrong with the Sanders campaign. Quote, maybe what voters wanted from Sanders after all this time was to be more personable, more relatable, more like a normal politician. And let's just for good measure, throw in a conservative analysis. This was Tim Miller talking on the Bulwark podcast today. And his campaign completely believed this false narrative that they had put out, which was that he was going to expand the electorate, that the Democratic Party had moved into his camp, that he didn't need to reach out to the neoliberals, that he did not need to you know, condemn Fidel Castro without caveat, uh, that he just needed to be pure, uncut burn, and that would be good enough. And here we are. Okay. Let us now examine the Bill of Particulars. Bernie Sanders didn't change his level of interpersonal connection. Bernie Sanders didn't change his tone. Bernie Sanders never changed his belief that a political revolution was coming. It turns out they're all saying that Bernie Sanders lost because he didn't change. The reason that the candidate who is a marvel of consistency, the candidate who is given credit by even his enemies for being the same person and never changing with the wind, the reason that guy lost was that he never changed. Thank you, experts. In other words, Bernie Sanders could have had a chance to win this whole thing had he simply acted in a way other than the way Bernie Sanders has always and will always act. Look, I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders never had a different message for different audiences, never emphasized or toned down certain stances depending on who he was speaking to. It's not like he's not a politician. He is a politician, in many ways a good politician. But if you, and everyone does, give him credit for complete and utter consistency, it seems to be a flaw of any postmortem that says what felled him was his consistency. This is his essence it's like saying the bird would never have fallen out of the sky had he just walked everywhere and the river only went dry because of its wetness in the first place. Or the opera singer lost her voice because she had this tendency to sing so much and so loudly. So I wouldn't look at Bernie Sanders as the guy who lost because he wouldn't change. I'd look at him as the guy who almost won because he never changed. And for some, that was enough, but not for enough people. And by the way, let's also examine the supposed value in not changing consistency or put another way, intransigence. The shame is said to be in being political, like in, say, cutting a deal with Strom Thurmond or allowing Republican members of the Judiciary Committee to aggressively question a witness you'd rather be treated better or talking about cutting a program that you like in order to achieve a broader goal that you want, or agreeing to some cuts in the funding of a program to at least get some funding for the program. We often decry these stances as compromised or, God forbid, political when they don't work out well or not as well as we'd like. But while we don't like the concept of someone who changes with the wind, and we might say we like complete and total consistency, it turns out there are other things we like more than that. Like, 
we, we tend to uh, rally behind a leader who can moderate a stance if need be, or who can reach out to a sometime enemy, who could comfort us as a people rather than a set of policy ideas. The policy damn well better be perfect to make up for a personal connection. And since no policy is perfect, we might say we want the utterly consistent character. But in the final analysis, that's the trait that we're first to fault. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Priscilla Alabi, whose favorite poetic form is free verse, though. A study by Taxpayers for Common Sense says it's not free. It'll add $3 trillion to the deficit. The gist was also produced by Margaret Kelly, who enjoys both nocturnes and pastorals, though a nocturnal pastoral might as well be a freaking limerick. You can't see the meadow. And though those two women produced the gist, they're not the gist's producer. That title belongs to Daniel Schrader. We should remember him. His favorite show is Killing Weave, wherein a trained assassin pulls the hair of rivals and a beleaguered Bravo executive tries to track her down to ask her to join the Real Housewives. The gist, my favorite poetic form, is the Ababalabalik, which is a limerick ewing to the AABBA rhyme scheme, but also it's about the band ABBA and must be set in Abu Dhabi. An example, there was once a dancing queen who came to a sheik in a dream. He and his confederates ran the United Arab Emirates better than they ran the Manchester City football team. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.